is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee on day 14 of the 60-day legislative session. The governor says he's excited about progress made by lawmakers during the first couple of weeks. Democrats do not share that enthusiasm. I think it was a rough week for students, for consumers, for healthcare workers, and uh, for the everyday person uh, in Florida. The theme, I think, is one of uh, hypocrisy at its worst or inconsistency or doublespeak uh, at its best. Democrats have not had any luck stopping the governor or thwarting his agenda, but there is one way to derail Ron DeSantis. The response of the Johnson & Johnson has been very positive. As you remember, what we got The train silenced the governor for less than a minute. This is a big day for anyone between the ages of 60 and 64. We can now be vaccinated for COVID-19. We're getting vaccine in. We've had the vast majority of seniors have gotten the shots. We're going to be able on Monday to lower the age to 60 for folks to be able to go do it. So, yeah, there you go, right there. So... To tell you the truth, it was surprisingly easy. I applied over the web at the Leon County Health Department. They called back to schedule an appointment, and I get my first dose of the Pfizer vaccine tomorrow. It's been a year since Florida went into a lockdown and the schools went virtual. Most teachers are back in the classroom, but they paid a price. With nearly 81,000 COVID cases in our schools and a loss of around 40 educators, we know the virus has had an impact in a very real way. We have too many stories to tell with loved ones who are gone and must wonder if everything uh, was done that could have been done to save the lives and slow the spread of this awful virus. When they wrapped up last year's session, the governor and his legislative allies declared 2020 the year of the teacher. The teachers say it didn't quite work out that way. Senators Jason Pizzo and Jeff Brandis spent the weekend visiting seven lockups in the Panhandle, getting a first-hand look at the problems caused by staffing shortages at the Departments of Juvenile Justice and Corrections. We're really struggling to acquire and, and maintain talented staff at these facilities. At the DJJ facilities, they were bad. At the, at the adult facilities, they were horrible. We'll also have your daily calendar of political events and the story of a Florida man named Baby Cakes who was chilling in his birthday suit, which is kind of terrifying since the guy is 71 years old. But first, a word from the sponsors. You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics, and we are much obliged. This public health crisis has shown our one-size-fits-all education system does not meet the needs of every child. Senate Bill 48 rethinks education and provides needed flexibility for students and families, giving students the tools and resources they need to unleash their potential. You can make a difference and improve our education system by visiting fledreform.com to tell your lawmaker to support SB 48. Paid for by Americans for Prosperity, Florida. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Monday, March 15th. This is the Ides of March, when Roman Emperor Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 B.C. This is also National Napping Day. On this date in 1913, Woodrow Wilson held the first press conference by an American president. In 1922, the first Southern radio station began broadcasting. It was Atlanta's WSB. Welcome South, brother. In 1928, Benito Mussolini modified Italy's electoral system. El Duce did not half-ass it with mere voter suppression. He abolished the right to choose. 
1960, the Key Largo Coral Reef Preserve became America's first underwater park, and in 2018, a pedestrian bridge in Miami collapsed onto an eight-lane highway just five days after it was built. Six people died. Sunday's report from the Florida Department of Health, 3,700 new cases of COVID-19, 31 more deaths. That is the lowest number of fatalities on a single day since mid-November. Our death toll has reached 32,860. That is one out of every 666 Floridians. As many as 2 million more Floridians are now eligible for a COVID vaccination. Under the Seniors First program, shots were set aside for persons 65 and older. But Governor Ron DeSantis says enough seniors have now been vaccinated so the age can be lowered to 60. Because we've done millions of seniors and we still, you know, whatever senior wants it, obviously we want to do it. Uh, you're going to continue to be eligible for it. But we're also in a situation we're getting vaccine in. We've had the vast majority of seniors have gotten the shots. We're going to be able on Monday to lower the age to 60 for folks yeah. to be able to go do it. So, yeah, there you go, right there. So, so we're going to do 60 on Monday. And because we have, we're getting more vaccine on a weekly basis than we were getting two months ago. So we have an opportunity to do really hundreds of thousands of folks, 60 to 64. And still, we're still going to be doing some seniors uh, who haven't gotten it yet. And I know there's different folks um, in different counties, depending on where you're at, where there may be more seniors that, that need it than others is, is almost tapped out. Once you had about 80%, I think that's kind of been... Uh, about the max or some folks that just decline it and that's fine. So we're going to do that. But then I think by the by, in sometime in March, we'll be able to lower it to 55 uh, and do that as well. And the bottom line is once you get below 50 on this thing, unless you have serious health problems, I mean, the mortality is very, very low. Uh, so we really believe seniors first was the right way now getting it into 60 and then we will soon have an announcement hopefully to get it down to 55 once you have the bulk of that you know you're going to see i think see these numbers continue to improve and i think that's really really exciting the governor's also standing his ground on the issue of future lockdowns or school closings last week president joe biden warned there could be more shutdowns if we don't get covid under control but DeSantis says that will not be happening in florida you know i was watching this speech saying oh well we may have to impose lockdown restrictions again, Biden said that. Let me just tell you, there's no lockdowns in Florida, okay? It's not going to happen. We're not going to let anyone close schools. We're not going to let anyone take your jobs. And we're not going to let anyone close your business. So don't worry about that in Florida. Uh, you know, we really believe that uh, that having the kids in school has been important. We think people being able to work is important. And we think putting seniors first on vaccines has been very important as well. So we're excited about uh, about uh, all that's going on. And, and we're definitely not going to be diverted by any any of that talk. The governor was in Indian River County Friday to talk about a new vaccination pod for seniors. And he had a number of vocal supporters there to cheer him on. But frankly, there was nothing they could do about that train. And it's going to be dedicated to providing the one-dose Johnson & Johnson vaccine for seniors here in Brevard County. So they're going to do a 1,000 seniors a day for the next four days. Uh, and we think that that's something that's very, very exciting. The response of the Johnson & Johnson has been very positive. As you remember, what do we got here? The train stopped the governor from talking for almost a minute, and he made good use of the interruption by taking selfies with the fans.
It's been a year since Florida schools shut down in the early days of the pandemic, and much has changed since then. Florida Education Association President Andrew Sparr says public schools were put through the ringer by COVID, and some teachers paid with their lives for the reopening. We all now know that our public schools are the best place for kids to learn, that our public schools are essential to our families and our communities, and that our public schools are vital to our economic well-being. But the reopening of our schools was not without sadness and disruption. With nearly 81,000 COVID cases in our schools and a loss of around 40 educators, we know the virus has had an impact in a very real way. We have too many stories to tell with loved ones who are gone and must wonder if everything uh, was done that could have been done to save the lives and slow the spread of this awful virus. We know we have a massive teacher and staff shortage. We were dealing with those massive shortages before the pandemic. And we know the pandemic has only made those shortages worse. This is arguably the biggest crisis facing our public schools as we move forward. Last year was called the year of the teacher by the governor and some lawmakers. But if you ask Florida teachers if they felt that last year was the year of the teacher, I believe you would get a resounding no. The question now is what will this year be? The truth is we still have a long way to go. We need lawmakers to support our public schools, our students, our teachers, and our staff. This past year has proven once again that no matter the circumstances, Florida's public school teachers and staff will do whatever it takes to educate our children well. The teachers union is trying to head off any education cuts this year, and they're running a new ad to try to stir up public support. It was scary reopening classrooms in the middle of a pandemic. Florida public school teachers and staff put the needs of our kids, families, and communities before their own, doing their part every day to keep the learning going and the economy moving. Now it's Tallahassee's turn. Tell your state senator, oppose legislation that limits the freedoms of teachers. It's time to support our teachers for our kids and their future. The ad began airing on the internet over the weekend and will run for the next couple of weeks. This is week number three of the legislative session, and the governor says so far so good, at least for his priorities. So I want to thank the legislators. I know they're working hard. We've got a lot of important priorities. We're working on um, uh, holding big tech accountable for deplatforming and censoring people, also protecting Floridians' data privacy from big tech. This is very, very important. They, the House has passed uh, really strong anti-rioting legislation. We want to continue with that in the Senate and get that get that over the hump. Uh, we're going to have, I think, we're going to do really well with uh, with our key initiatives in terms of environment, in terms of education. That tech bill is up in a House committee this afternoon. The governor also says he'll make announcements later this week on education and the environment. Now, one person who does not share the governor's rosy view of the 2021 session is Senator Gary Farmer of Broward, the leader of the Senate Democrats. As he looked back on the second week of the session, Farmer was flummoxed. I think it was a rough week for students, for consumers, for healthcare workers, and uh, for the everyday person uh, in Florida. The theme, I think, is one of uh, hypocrisy at its worst or inconsistency or doublespeak uh, at its best. For example, this week we saw a voter suppression bill, Senate Bill 90, 
uh, sponsored by Senate Baxley, that passed through the Senate Government and Oversight Accountability Committee. Among other things, this bill would limit the avenues through which Floridians are able to return their vote-by-mail uh, ballots by removing drop boxes and by taking away the ability for elderly and homebound voters uh, to request assistance with returning their ballots. Not only is this a blatant assault on Florida's right to vote, but it comes at the same week that former President Trump praised the status quo of Florida's vote-by-mail system and once again registered to vote by mail in the upcoming elections. Now, I don't often, if ever, cite former President Trump as evidence of good policy or good practice, but again, hypocrisy, inconsistency. And in this area, with regard to our most cherished constitutional right, the right to exercise the power of the vote, you've just got to ask yourself why. We had, according to Governor DeSantis himself, the best election in the country here in Florida, the most transparent election here in Florida. Vote by mail numbers were through the roof, understandably so, given the coronavirus and its impact and threat of impact on Floridians. We've seen in 43 different states, 250 new laws proposed, which would either take away or limit provisions of laws that made it easier for Americans to exercise their right to vote. And Senate Bill 90 does exactly that. And it's being done with absolutely no evidence whatsoever of any voter fraud or any wrongdoing with regard to the vote-by-mail system. I just keep asking, why do Republicans fear the vote? Farmer also has a problem with a bill that would reduce bright future scholarships for students who pursue a liberal arts major. They would only receive the full scholarship if they choose a major that, quote, leads directly to employment. Farmer says the state has no business telling students what to study. We've got another bill, also by Senator Baxley, that is rapidly making its way through the Senate. And this is the bill that would add additional restrictions to the Bright Future Scholarship Program. Again, like our vote by mail in Florida, Bright Futures has shown to be one of the best vehicles out there or assistance for hardworking, accomplished students. These are students who have earned this scholarship through exemplary performance during their high school career. Yet this bill would strip the brightest of our students of their ability to pursue the education and degree or career path that they feel best fits their skills and interests. At every level of state education, Republican lawmakers claim to be champions of choice. So again, inconsistency and hypocrisy. In this instance, they have decided to shackle these accomplished, brilliant students, these deserving students, to an arbitrary list of limited degrees that they deem appropriate at the whim of just one set of lawmakers. And in support of this bill, Senator Baxley specifically criticized 
sociology degrees, a degree he himself holds. This is a case, again, of do what I say, not what I do. And then you have the bills to protect business from COVID liability lawsuits. Senator Farmer says they're great for negligent corporations, but not for the healthcare heroes they are supposed to be helping. These COVID bills don't protect our healthcare workers. These bills would make it harder for our frontline healthcare workers, the people we have rightly lauded as heroes for the past year, from receiving compensation or medical care when they are in fact contracting COVID. We have heightened the burden of proof. We have heightened the standard that must be proved for those workers to get the protections and the coverages and the help that they need if they contract COVID. But the issue of healthcare, healthcare workers, and even more so nursing home residents being stripped of the legal protections that the state of Florida currently provides to them is extremely offensive and bad public policy. The law isn't broken. We don't need to fix anything. But in passing this legislation, we are potentially taking away legal protections that rightly exist for our brave healthcare workers and the most vulnerable, frail residents of the state of Florida, our parents and grandparents and loved ones who reside in nursing homes and assisted living facilities. Farmer is also accusing Republican leaders of abusing new COVID safety rules about testimony to shut down public comment, limiting speakers to 30 or 60 seconds. The current and former chairs of the Criminal Justice Committee in the Senate spent the weekend touring prisons and juvenile detention facilities in the panhandle. Senator Jason Pizzo rode shotgun as Senator Jeff Brandis flew his single-engine airplane to Pensacola Saturday and Panama City Sunday so they could get a better idea of the staffing crisis at the Department of Juvenile Justice and the Department of Corrections. We'll start off with Senator Brandis, who has been working on sentencing reform for years. Some of these facilities are really in emergency staffing, and we could see it firsthand. We went to a a close management facility at Santa Rosa. And, you know, you could see on the staff's faces how challenging the situation was for them. And the physical space itself kind of spoke to that, recognizing that in many of these facilities, there aren't programming, there is no programming, there is no yard activity. Oftentimes, these individuals aren't getting, uh, getting out of their cells for more than three hours a week if they're in close management. Um, and, and, and if you have staffing challenges, sometimes it's hard to get them out even for that. So I think, you know, we want to see firsthand the, the staffing situations that we hear from Secretary Inch. And I think this trip highlighted those. At the DJJ facilities, they were bad. At the, at the adult facilities, they were horrible. In what way? Uh, as far as staffing. I mean, I think the staffing is really we're really struggling to acquire and and maintain talented staff at these facilities and how has covid complicated that this year well i think covid's complicated it because more and more uh individuals uh who are choosing to work in these facilities are are really thinking about you know if you know as the stories of more and more covid broke in the in the prison system you know, corrections officers were making decisions because of the pay is, you know, starting pay at a corrections facility is like $35,000. 
And so they, they're looking, saying, I can get a better job with less exposure to COVID at other facilities. And what we've seen is a 40% reduction or 40% of our first year staff will turn over within that first year, uh, 60% within two years. And so we really struggle to maintain quality, experienced staff in our facilities. And that, that affects everything um, that we're trying to do on the positive side. Do you think this can be fixed by going with the shorter shifts, the eight and a half versus the 12 hour, or is it more than just that? No, I think it's more than just that because ultimately what's happening, even when you have eight hour shifts is because you're, ha- you're so understaffed, those, those individuals on an eight hour shift are getting held over for four hours. So they're actually working the 12 hour shift and your 12 hour folks are working 16 hours and then coming right back on and working again in a few, a few hours later. So I think we've got to look for at pay. We've got to look at other incentives, whether it be staff housing or other other ideas to increase uh, staff at these facilities. Now, Senator Pizzo, as the new chairman of uh, the criminal justice panel in the Senate, where do you go from here? What do you want to do? So to, to your earlier question, it's um, we, you know, we were talking about, you know, not, not only just the programs and the physical plant, but also change in policy and change in law. A lot of decisions were made in a very arbitrary fashion to begin with. So when we go to change them, you know, sometimes they have strong opposition from law enforcement or strong, obviously, support from from the families of these inmates. But the where do we go from here is, is using data and realizing that this is not all in a vacuum, that these are physical breathing plants and structures that deteriorate, that need maintenance. So just I mean, just a couple of examples. We were at one facility where radio communications were poor. Um, and you know, they're, they're, they were short staffed and the radio communication went over. It was misinterpreted, a door opened and one of the inmates popped out to stab, uh, one of the, uh, one of the staff members, one of the security members in, in other places, just, uh, just yesterday, we went into a closed management area where, you know, you have guys in real sort of protected status, so to speak. And there's only one staff member who was basically handing out and retrieving all trays from from food for 40 plus inmates, you know, and he was like, yeah, good to see you, but I need to get back to my job. So on the, where do we go from here? Each and every single place we went to, you know, we don't just sort of do like the chamber of commerce tour. We sit down and we talk to the inmates. We talked to teenage girls today in the in department of juvenile justice and teenage boys. We talked to, we see 85 year old men who you would think would be, you know, in line for compassionate release. But every one of these inmates, especially the adult inmates are all asking us as soon as they figure out that we're from the legislature, what are you guys doing about min-mans? What are you doing about prison release reoffender st- statuses, which are basically like an automatic tr- trigger if you have two types of convictions within three years, you face the max. So, you know, we're talking to 25-year-olds who committed a crime at 19, committed a subsequent crime at 21, and are sentenced to life in prison. So where do we go from here is, you know, changing the, the conversation, the dynamic to going from we're just warehousing people and punishing to public safety. And if it warrants that somebody is just cannot be rehabilitated, you know, or the crime itself just dictates that they, they, they must be out of society is one thing. But for others, when it's a drug addiction problem and not a criminal problem at its core, when there's not uniformity, there's completely ingru- uh, incongruent and disparate treatment and, and, and results from one circuit court, you know, to one court circuit to the next, th- those things really have to be looked at. So, Gain time is a huge issue um, that's at the forefront, but the but the 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 delta sort of the the span of quality and quality of of life or just conditions from some of these places are are completely inconsistent. 
And I have to ask you, can you rate the uh, senator's skills as a pilot? Uh, he's pretty freaking great. I'm not, not going to lie to you. I've been in a lot of uh, uh, different sized planes from the very big to the very small. And uh, I got to tell you, I came in for a landing early this morning and he was at about 182 knots. And uh, it was uh, it was it was it was he's pretty good. I gotta, I'm not going to lie to you. Senator Brandis, what's harder to bring in for a landing, your plane or the state budget? Uh, I think uh, definitely the Department of Corrections budget is going to be harder to rain for a landing. I think some of the things they're talking about right now that they want to do in that budget, I think, will be very difficult to accomplish without it dramatically impacting uh, public safety and, and the lives of those that are that are incarcerated. I think if we look around the state, we have a ton of inmate idleness. We are looking at over 50 percent of our facilities are in emergency staffing and uh, and, and we've got to address we've got to address a whole host of issues, and they're all none, none of them are inexpensive. That's the challenge. Getting more money for prisons is never easy, even in the best of times, let alone when there's as much uncertainty about the budget as there is today. State lawmakers are about to get serious about fixing the broken unemployment system. It's called Connect, and it crashed big time at the start of the pandemic. The state has actually spent more in the past year slapping band-aids on the system than it cost to build it in the first place. Today, the Senate Commerce and Tourism Committee takes up Senate Bill 1948 that revamps the system and creates an office to make sure it's upgraded as the years go by, something that apparently never happened with Connect. The sponsor, Senator Aaron Bean of Fernandina Beach, wants to go with a cloud-based system to ensure the checks go out on time and the system operates efficiently. An identical bill has been filed in the House by Representative Chip Lamarca of Lighthouse Point. Your calendar of events is next, along with the latest from Florida man, The Naked Truth. But first, a message from the sponsors. In Florida, if you fall behind on court debt payments, the state takes away your driver's license. But if you can't drive, you can't work. So how can you make enough money to pay the debt? This policy makes no sense. Let's end debt-based license suspensions and help Florida get back to work. Welcome back to the Sunrise Calendar. The Florida Office of Insurance Regulation holds an online public hearing at 9 about a proposal to raise rates for customers of Citizens Property Insurance Corporation. House Democrats hold an online media availability at 9.30 to talk about the week ahead. At 10, the Department of Economic Opportunity releases the January unemployment report. That's followed at 10.30 by a media avail with the agency's chief economist. At 1, the House Children, Families and Seniors Subcommittee discusses wide-ranging changes in the child welfare system. The House Environment, Agriculture, and Flooding Subcommittee meets at 1. They'll take up a constitutional amendment to give homeowners a break on their property taxes if they make improvements to protect their properties from flooding. At 3.30, the Senate Environment and Natural Resources Committee takes up a bill to address sea level rise and flooding. At 3.45, the House Appropriations Committee takes up a bill to crack down on tech companies. Among other things, they want to prohibit social media companies from blocking political candidates who lie or spread hate speech on their platforms. The Tampa Bay Climate Alliance holds an online town hall meeting at 6 that includes four Bay Area lawmakers. And at 7, U.S. Representative Val Demings of Orlando speaks during an online Women's History Month celebration held by the Democratic Club of North Florida. Finally today, a Florida man is carted off to the Lee County Jail after he was discovered chilling in a chair completely naked. Police say 71-year-old Irving Howard of Fort Myers, who is also known as Baby Cakes, set up his chair next to the parking lot of an apartment complex with children in the area. He's charged with lewd and lascivious behavior, disorderly intoxication, and indecent exposure. That's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.